Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The program is pre-recorded. Listener calls are not being taken at this time. Thanks for listening to AM 1420, The Answer. It's a fact. If the riches of the wealthy were given to the average American, the rich would have their wealth back in no time at all. Not because they're more deserved, but because they do a really great job of getting us to spend it back to them. And once it's in their hands, they work it to their self-interest. The host of Get Rich Slow, Jim McAleese, believes the financial decisions you make today will guide your financial destiny tomorrow. Jim teaches you to plan for the worst and then hope for the best. America is under no obligation to provide what you need. Entitlements are out. Opportunity is today's watchword. Money matters can be intimidating, but they don't have to be. So let's supercharge your wealth building plan now with Jim McAleese. financial planner and we're going to be here for the next hour to help you improve your bottom line so today is a special edition of get rich slow although we are not live in the studio this morning colleen our beautiful producer has compiled some common questions asked by callers clients and folks just like you throughout the show we'll be addressing these questions so now, stay tuned for more of Get Rich Slow. distributions? That's an excellent question. Required minimum distributions refer to distributions from the retirement accounts. For example, in the case of an IRA, whether it's a traditional IRA, one that you've been contributing to over the last 20 years, where the uh, allowable contributions this year are $6,000 if you're less than age 50, and you can add another $1,000 if you're age 50 or older. Or it could be a SEP IRA or a simple IRA or a rollover IRA 
where you have rolled over your company retirement lump sum into an IRA. The RMD date for distribution of the first year is April 1st of the year after you turn 70 and a half, traditionally. But under the new SECURE Act, if your 70th birthday was July 1st, 2019 or later, you do not have to take uh, withdrawals until you reach age 72, even if you're not retired yet. This includes the year that you make your first required minimum distribution. You would then be taking two required minimum distributions that first year. For each year afterwards, you must take your required minimum distribution by December 31st. In the case of a Roth IRA, you don't have to worry about the required minimum distributions. In another case, for the 403B accounts, the rules are the same as for your IRA with one exception. If you are still working at age 72 and have a 403B with your current employer, you may be able to delay distributions from your account until April 1st of the year after you retire. Required minimum distributions for any other 403B accounts you have must begin by April 1st of the year after you turn 72. If you have any assets in an employer-sponsored retirement plan and are still working for the employer at age 60, at age 72, you may be able to delay distributions from these employer plan accounts until April 1st of the year after you retire. So if you own the business, though, then different tax rules apply. And basically, then you should consult your uh, uh, tax advisor. So this is Jim McAleese, and you're listening to Get Rich Slow. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Jim, a lot of our listeners have this question. They have a winter home down in Florida, and they use it for themselves, obviously, during the colder months. But if they were to rent it out occasionally to offset expenses, what would some of the IRS rules be for them to rent out their home? This can be a a simple question, depending upon what you're using the house for in Florida, but it could be a complex question, too. The IRS allows most owners to lower taxable income by taking tax deductions for vacation homes. What's deductible depends upon a number of factors, especially how often you visit and whether you allow renters. If you bought your vacation home exclusively for personal enjoyment, you can generally deduct your mortgage interest and real estate taxes just as you would on a primary residence. Now, you, what you do is use Schedule A to take the deductions. The IRS even allows you to rent out your vacation home for up to 14 days a year without paying taxes on the rental income. How great is that, huh? You might be able to deduct uninsured casualty losses, too though you may not be able to write off rental-related expenses. If the house is rented for more than 14 days, then you must claim the income and things becoming a little bit more complex. Now, if you own what you consider a vacation home but never visited and only rent it out, other tax rules apply. Without personal use, the house is considered an investment or a rental property by the IRS. Time spent checking in on a house or making repairs doesn't count as personal use. 
As an exclusive rental property, you can deduct numerous expenses, including taxes, insurance, mortgage interest, utilities, housekeeping, and repairs. Even towels and sheets are deductible. What you do is use Schedule E. You can also write off depreciation, the value loss due to the wear and tear of home experiences over time. You need to treat the rental property as a business. You have to keep detailed records, maintain a separate checking account, figure that you will spend a couple hours a week on average over the course of the year managing the property. To maximize deductions, you need to be actively involved in the rental property. What does actively involved mean? That means performing such duties as approving new tenants and coming up with rental terms. And you also need to own at least 10% of the property in case you're part of a larger group there. What you do is see the IRS publication number 527 for details and consult with your qualified tax advisor before taking any action. If your modified adjusted gross income, which is the same as a really adjusted gross income for most people, is below $100,000, you can deduct as much as $25,000 for rental losses. That is, the difference between your rental receipts and your rental expenses. The deduction generally phases out between a modified adjusted gross income of $100,000 and $150,000. You can carry forward excess losses to future years or offset losses to other gains when you sell. The tax picture gets a little bit more complicated when in the same year you make personal use of your vacation home and you rent it out for more than 14 days. Remember, rental income is tax-free only if you rent for 14 days or fewer. The key to maximizing deductions is keeping annual personal use of your vacation home to fewer than 15 days or 10% of the total rental days, whichever is greater. In that case, the vacation home can be treated as a rental, meaning that you get the same generous deductions. Now, to avoid going over the 10% limit, essentially, you should not use a uh, vacation home for more than one day for every 10 days you rent it. Make personal use of your vacation home for more than 14 days or more than 10% of the total rental days, however, and your deductions may be limited. For example, your rental receipts are less than your rental expenses. Well, you can't offset the loss against other income sources such as salaries and pensions. There's a worksheet in that uh, IRS publication 527 They can help you determine which expenses you can carry over to the following year. Another big blow, the IRS requires you to divide expenses between personal use and rental use. Let's say you have a vacation home you're personally using for, let's say, 25 days, and you rent it for 75 days. That's 100 days total use, and now you can only write off 75% of the expenses as rental expenses, 75 rental days divided by 100 total days, and that adds up to 75%. Some of the personal expenses, such as mortgage interests and real estate taxes, may be deductible on that Schedule A that we talked about before. Tax deductions for vacation homes are complex, so make sure that you consult a tax advisor 
and make sure that you get the right information. Otherwise, you'll be in trouble with that. So this is Jim McAleese, and you're listening to Get Rich Slow. We'll be right back. reduced because of a government pension. And a lot of people feel that's not fair. Can you explain? Well, the government in its wisdom declared it so. A while ago, a a retired caller who had worked for the county government and was receiving an Ohio pension employee's retirement system pension called to talk about the reduction in his Social Security benefits. Previously, he had worked in the steel mills for more than 10 years and was fully insured regarding Social Security. Well, he had more than 40 quarters before he began working for the county. And the bottom line of his predicament was that his Social Security benefits were reduced by approximately $443 each month because of his government pension. It didn't seem fair, and he wasn't happy. Well, that reduction of Social Security benefits is due to the windfall elimination provisions of the Social Security rules. The windfall elimination provisions affects how the amount of your retirement or disability benefit is calculated if you receive a a pension from work where the Social Security taxes were not taken out of your pay. That is, if you receive a pension from uh, STRS or OPERS or Ohio Police and Firemen Pension or Ohio State uh, Trooper Pension or the Civil Service Retirement System Pension from the federal government. For these cases, there are special rules. In that case, a modified formula is used to calculate your benefit amount resulting in a lower Social Security benefit than you otherwise would receive. You know, the the government's rationale for this reduction in benefits is that the formula for calculating Social Security benefits is based bias towards the lower paid workers. For example, uh, lower paid workers could get a Social Security benefit that is equal to about 55% of their pre-retirement earnings while highly paid workers get a Social Security benefit that equals about 25% of their pre-retirement earnings. Before 1983, people who worked mainly in a job not covered by Social Security had their Social Security benefits calculated as if they were long-term low-wage earners. Then they had the advantage of receiving a Social Security benefit representing a higher percentage of their earnings plus a pension from a job where they did not pay the Social Security taxes. So Congress, in its infinite wisdom, 
ask the windfall elimination provision to take away or remove that advantage. For example, if I was a policeman that worked for a local city government and did not pay Social Security taxes, but I did pay an even greater percentage of my pay into the Ohio Police and Firemen's Pension Plan, then in addition, and in addition, I worked part time as a security guard for a private company and paid Social Security on my part-time wages. Then when I retired at age 62, my part-time wages reported to Social Security would make me look like a low-paid worker entitled to a higher percentage of my average index monthly earnings. Now, here is how the windfall elimination provision works. Security benefits are based upon the worker's average index monthly earnings adjusted for inflation and averaged over the highest 35 years. Well, the Social Security benefits are calculated by applying three different percentages to a person's lifetime average index monthly earnings and adding them up to attain uh, the worker's monthly benefit and at full retirement age. Now, for most beneficiaries in 2022, the primary insurance amount or the the uh, worker's monthly benefit at full retirement, that equals the sum of 190% or first $1,024 of the uh, average index monthly earnings plus 32% of the average index monthly earnings over $1,024 and through $6,172 plus 15% of the average index monthly earnings over $6,172. Sounds kind of complicated, but it is. The windfall elimination provision replicates the regular primary insurance amount but scales down the first percentage from 90% to 40%. So you lose 50% of that first uh, chunk in increments of five percentage points for workers with less than 30 years of coverage. Thus, workers with 30 or more years of coverage have a first primary insurance amount factor of 90%. Workers with 21 to 29 years of coverage have a first primary insurance amount factor of between 45 and 85%. And workers with 20 years of coverage have a first primary insurance amount factor of 40%. However, always however, the difference between the regular primary insurance amount and the windfall elimination provision cannot exceed one half of the monthly non-covered pension. So this provision is known as the windfall elimination provision, the guarantee, and results in a smaller windfall elimination provision reduction to the Social Security benefits than otherwise would have been applied. So, you know, when you read all this, it's complicated. There's a lot of details and rules. So, as I mentioned earlier in the show, in any case, the best advice I can give you is to contact your local Social Security office and go down there and go over the details of your specific case. Uh, this is not a telephone call. The telephone call is set it up, but 
Uh, you got to go down there and talk to these people. Then you'll be talking to an expert with all your work records on their computer screen in front of them. And after you get done talking to them, make sure you get their name and telephone number so that you can phone them if you have any questions in the future. Like a lot of times you'll come up with questions on your way home and, uh, but you, you forgot them. So now that gives you a chance to go back again. This is Jim McAleese. You're listening to Get Rich Slow. We'll be right back. So stay tuned. wife does not work outside the home, what options does she have for a deductible IRA? That's a good question, Colleen. You know, with retirement coming, it's necessary for a couple to utilize their IRA opportunities as much as possible, even though only one of them works outside the home. For example, a non-working spouse may qualify to make a deductible IRA contribution of up to $6,000 for this year, for 2022. Now that changes to 7000 if age 50 or older. Now the key to qualifying is for the couple to file a joint return and have enough earned income to cover the contribution. However, the deductibility of the non-working spouse's contributions is phased out for couples with adjusted gross incomes between $109,000 and $129,000 for this year. That's provided that the working spouse is covered by a qualified retirement plan. Now, a point to remember is that when neither spouse participates in a qualified retirement plan, both spouses can make a deductible contribution of up to $6,000 each, regardless of the adjusted gross income. Now, if both spouses work and both participate in qualified retirement plans, then the phase-out range of one hundred nine to one hundred twenty-nine thousand applies to both spouses. Another possibility is that if both spouses work, but only one is a participant in the qualified retirement plan, in that case, for the participant in the qualified retirement plan their ability to make a deductible contribution is limited by the $109,000 to $129,000 phase-out range. But the non-participant spouse is covered by a much more liberal $204,000 to $214,000 phase-out range. If this sounds complicated, that's because it is complicated. With that in mind, the information we provided answering your questions is not really intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax advisor. You should always contact your own tax professional to help answer questions about specific situations or needs prior to taking any action based upon, you know, this information. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we can't guarantee its accuracy or timeliness or completeness. And, uh, you know, every case is uh, different, special. So 
This is Jim Maglins. You're listening to Get Rich Slow. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Colleen, producer of Get Rich Slow. Each week, we take calls from people just like you who have questions for our host, Jim McAleese. Oftentimes, however, Jim can't answer all your questions because of time restraints and the need for more detailed information. That's why we encourage you to call Cornerstones Consultants, Inc., the financial counseling service founded by Jim and Tama McAleese. Cornerstones Consultants, Inc. has helped thousands of clients get more for their money. Whether your financial goal is to avoid common investing mistakes, finding your next home, planning for retirement, finding the right mutual fund, or covering your assets with the right kind of insurance, Cornerstone Consultants, Inc. will guide you to wise financial choices. Cornerstone Consultants, Inc. can be contacted at 440-647-2793. So call Cornerstone Consultants, Inc. for an appointment today. That number again, 440-647-2793. Now back to more Get Rich Slow with Jim Magalies. If a husband is 62 years old and considering claiming his Social Security early, and if he does, will this lower his wife's benefits also? Ah, good question. As you know, claiming Social Security before your full retirement age, which is generally about uh, 66, will lower your benefits permanently. Social Security reduces your benefits uh, using the early retirement uh, penalty so that you'll receive the same amount between now and the a- your average life expectancy, whether you claim at age 66 or get the standard amount and, 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 a- and get the standard amount. At age 62, you get a smaller amount or 70, you get an increased amount. That said, if you claim benefits early, and you live past a certain age called your break-even point, you'll wind up collecting less in total lifetime benefits than if you had waited to claim them at full retirement age. Now, to answer your question, if we if you claim your Social Security retirement benefits early, uh, this will not affect your wife's uh, dependent uh, benefits, which is also called the spousal retirement benefits. As long as your wife waits until her full retirement age to claim her spousal benefits, she can collect the full amount because dependent benefits are based upon your primary insurance amount, which is based upon your earnings record at your uh, full retirement age. 
whether or not you claim benefits early doesn't affect the amount of dependent benefits your spouse can claim. Uh, Spousal retirement benefits are half of your primary insurance amount. That is half of what you would have received if you had waited until full retirement age to claim benefits. However, if your wife claims the spousal retirement benefits before her full retirement age, her spousal benefits will be lowered permanently. Uh, Survivor's benefits are handled differently. If you claim retirement benefits early, this will lower your wife's survivor benefits, also called the widow's benefits or deceased husband's benefits, should you die before her. That is because at your death, your wife will be able to collect the same amount you are entitled to before you died. If your retirement benefits are lowered because of early retirement uh, deductions or increased because of delayed retirement up to age 70, your wife's survivor benefits will be similarly increased or decreased. Also, if your wife were to collect the survivor's benefits before she reaches full retirement age, anytime from 60 to 65, her survivor benefits would be decreased. So if you collect retirement benefits early and then your wife collected her survivor benefits early, uh, she would only get a small portion of your full retirement age benefits. There's an exception to this if your wife is caring for your dependent, minor, or disabled children. In that situation, she would not get an early retirement penalty regardless of the age she claimed. This is, this is claimed as the mother's benefit. So I hope that answers your question. This is Jim McAleese. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Welcome back to Get Jack Rich Slow. I'm your host this morning, Jim McAleese. Well, when we start talking about planning for the financial future of our family, hey, we start identifying your dreams, your goals. That process is different for each individual. Some people, they like to dream out loud and they can generate a wish list that includes everything but the kitchen sink. Others who have been through this exercise before and they quickly identify goals that they can easily attain. Myself, I like to put too much on the list of goals. That's because the the initial wish list is just a starting point. Some people dream about a new job, education for themselves or for the family, a home, maybe a starter home, maybe something grand, a family, starting their own business vacations and travel, maybe helping their parents and siblings, most of all, a secure retirement. The important point is to put it on a list. That identifies the dream. Whose dream is it? His or hers? It helps people identify the goals enough to give it some dimensions. That also helps people scope it out in terms of dollars and the effort involved. It also helps define the time frame. That is going to be important when people realize that their scarcest resources are time and money. With each of these goals, you can develop a cost figure and define a time, now or in the future, when the money has to be available for the goal. 
As the goals and the time frames become better defined, then comes the question about how to fund the goals. That will lead to how much money is available in terms of paychecks or borrowing power. Some goals, like children and a family, they'll have a big impact on the family resources due to the loss of a paycheck or the cost of child care. Typically, the goals will have to be prioritized and basically iterated on in order to fit within the limits of our time and our money. During this process, the savings plan has to be drawn and redrawn and the goals scaled down, uh, if necessary, to fit the resources. The same is true to a lesser degree with the investment planning. As people become more familiar with their family financial plan and become more confident in their savings and investment plans, the goals, they have to be revisited and revised. It's a lifelong task. Hopefully, we can expand those goals. Uh, You're listening to Get Rich Low this morning. I'm Jim McAleese, and we're going to be back here. So stay tuned and come back in a minute. Is it considered legal to use a required minimum distribution from your IRA to pay your annual church dues? I know someone who says she does this every year, but I'm wondering if it's really okay in the eyes of the law. Yes, Colleen, that's uh, perfectly legal. At a certain age, every IRA owner is required to take required minimum distributions. As are called RMDs from their retirement accounts. So if you reach the age of uh, 70 and a half in uh, 2019, you had to take your first required minimum distribution by April 1st of 2020. Because of the SECURE Act, though, which was passed recently, the Act of uh, 2019, if you reach the age of 70 and a half in 2020 or later, you have to take your first required minimum distribution by April 1st of the year after you reach age 72. However, uh, there's more to it. However, as a result of the CARES Act, the required minimum distributions were suspended for 2020. So if you wish to make a contribution to a charitable organization and you're over the age of 70 and a half, you can direct that a distribution from your IRA be made directly to the charitable organization. That distribution will be used to satisfy your required minimum distribution dollar per dollar. That's called a Qualified Charitable Distribution, QCD. This will result in that share of the required minimum distribution not being considered taxable income to you. A qualified charitable distribution is not added to your income, so you still have the same standard deduction, but now your taxable income is less. That means that you effectively get the equivalent of the standard deduction and a charitable distribution as the income is not included on your return. 
your friend is using her qualified charitable distribution to pay her church dues. Now, should this qualify as a charitable contribution if she is getting something in return? Normally, when you receive something in return from a charitable contribution, you can't deduct the full amount of your deduction. The deduction must be reduced by the value of the benefit received. But the federal tax law exempts intangible religious benefits, such as admission to worship services, as a benefit received in return that would reduce the value of the contribution. So, your friend would be entitled to use a qualified charitable distribution to satisfy her dues as well as her required minimum distribution. So, it's okay. Come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come ye, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold Him, born the King of angels. Come, let us adore Him. Come, let us adore Him. Come, let us adore Him. Christ the Sing, all ye citizens of heaven above, glory to God in the highest. Welcome back to Get Rich Slow. This is your host this morning, Jim McAleese. Let's talk about your financial plan. When we started the show, we talked about certain aspects of it, but Do you have a plan for your life and for your money? At the start of each day, it's all about the possibilities. At the end of the day, it's all about the results. And everything in between will help or hinder your journey to greater wealth. Remember, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Uh, Your plan has to start with your family's goals. Uh, What are your family's most important short-term and long-term goals? Short-term goals, they have a time span of three years or less. They may include establishing an emergency fund, uh, reducing consumer debt, uh, maybe purchasing a new car, uh, taking a summer vacation, uh, paying down a little bit of college tuition. Longer-term goals, those are for more than three years away, and they include may include saving for retirement. Starting a college fund for the kids' future education, beginning a small business, or or maybe purchasing a first or a a step-up home. Where the money should be invested uh, depends on the length of time until the money is needed, not on the nature of the goal itself. For example, the biggest mistake new retirees can make is to try to protect their investment principal at the expense of long-term growth. They may invest in fixed income investments because they believe that they're safer, but 
They really need growth so that their money can last over their long and expensive retirement years. And I remember the old saying that uh, a couple of 65 years old today, there's a 25% chance of one of them living until 93. So 65 to 93 is a very, very long time. So that is long-term horizons. Uh, Short-term money is for goals less than three years, and there you have to protect the investment principle. While long-term goals, you have to protect the purchasing power. The investments suitable for each time frame are vastly different. So let's let's take a look at your family goals. Each goal, each goal has a price tag and probably a schedule associated with it. Uh, Let's say money uh, for the first house, uh, money for the children's education. To meet these goals, we have to save, and basically saving is hard work. Uh, But let's look at it from a different perspective. We are going to make a lot of money during our lives if we just multiply our annual pay by the number of years we've been working and then take a look at what we've been able to keep for example, if your gross pay averaged $75,000 a year over a 40-year career, then your total pay would amount to approximately $3 million. Do you have the $3 million or close to the $3 million? Most of the time, no. The question is, are you working for a living or for a life? And whom are you making rich? Maybe everybody else in town. Then how much of that income are you saving and investing? So you have to be able to put aside a a significant amount of that income in terms of saving and investments. Let's figure that out for for a month. What we need to do is create a budget. What's the first bill you pay each month? If you answered the mortgage or the rent, think again. The first bill you pay is to Uncle Sam, who basically takes your money and distributes it to others. You can move yourself to the number one spot if you establish an individual retirement account or a 401k plan at work or a retirement SEP or simple profit sharing or other type of pension plans, uh, most people pay bills uh, in the following order. First, the mortgage or the rent is usually paid. Then the utility bills, then the car payments, and then food is paid for. And finally, there's a scramble to cover the monthly minimums on the credit cards, time payments, and miscellaneous expenses. Why don't we try a different approach to budgeting? Make the first bill you pay a bill to yourself. Even if you can't save uh, 10% of your net income, you start saving something. If your emergency fund is low, that's a uh, short-term goal, make sure that your first bill is to add, build up your, your direct funds to your investment goals. Every household needs a rainy day fund, so you build up your emergency fund. The second bill uh, becomes the mortgage or rent. Then as you prioritize them, all other necessary expenses will be paid. And what you've done by paying yourself first is recover the fritter money. And that becomes, uh, that's that's the usual word for the wasteful spending. That's when you suddenly look and say, I've been making this much. Um, but I've been spending this much and how much of that money that I spent is wasted. Now you start to save it. You identify it, you start to save it and it begins to work for you. Paying yourself first 
is the most underrated way to accumulate wealth over time, and it is a basically a powerful wealth-building habit. While we're talking about budgets, do you know that you have to write the budget down on paper? Creating a rigid, written budget can be time-consuming, it can be boring, and it can even depressing, but it's also very necessary. In developing your budget, go through every expense category, writing down what you spent each month as realistically as possible. All of that information is in your checkbook register. It's in your uh, charge account statements. Uh, all You can put together general ideas of the what you spend just from those sources. Utilities can vary each month, averaging the bills, uh, including the highest months. And then by pretending you're spending the same amount each month on certain items, you can pay current bills that may be smaller and have the extra money ready in your checking account when you need to write a bigger check later. Items such as uh, clothing, entertainment, uh, maintenance, and uh, house maintenance, these things are harder to predict, but when in doubt, what you do is just uh, uh, boost the estimate up a little higher. A newer car, like a newer home, generally requires less upkeep than an older one, but tires, oil changes, and other incidentals, they add up each each year. Older vehicles also need things like water pumps and temperature gauges and radiators, etc. Be sure to include a separate category for Christmas and other gift-giving uh, uh, events and vacations, and also add those into your budgets. That way, you'll, you won't overspend at any one time and then take nine months to pay off the credit charges uh, from the previous year. Then what you do is total all your monthly expenses and put uh, that amount at the top of the page and call it monthly expenses. Now, subtract your uh, expenses from your, from your monthly income. Hopefully, there's more money coming in than going out. And basically, that extra money is the fritter money. Fritter money is unconsciously spent and depletes a great portion of your wealth over time. But you can redirect that amount towards a financial goal and make it a budget item. Uh, You're astounded at how much the fritter money is being lost, but you actually uh, sit down and take a look at one of your goals and say, that, that money could fit that funding that particular goal. And this is our wealth building, money for savings, college, retirement, your own business, or other future goals. This is one bill you pay to yourself each and every month. And this payment to yourself uh, can create your emergency fund. It can also start a college fund or add to the retirement goals. It's not as important what vehicle, be it a bank, uh, uh, savings or a credit union or a money market uh, account is utilized as long as the money is protected from loss and you can get out at a moment's notice. Uh, just put something away each and every month. As your income increases, what you do is pay more uh, to your monthly savings or investment plan than to your spending plan. And then what you do is review uh, at least once a month that plan and basically hold an occasional family meeting uh, to praise those who have made an effort to keep the budget in check and to find weak points, uh, things that can be improved on. 
And what you do is make sure every member of the family, make them responsible for some part of the plan's success. For instance, if your teenager, for example, has reduced the number of telephone calls and texts uh, to his or her friends, then basically recognize them, recognize their sacrifice and offer praise and make up your mind to stick to the plan. And if you stick to the plan, work with a plan, it will improve over time. And if temporary emergencies occur that make the plan impossible to stick to, hey, well, you take care of the emergencies and then you start budgeting again as soon as possible. What you find out is having a financial plan protects you from that impulse buying because instead of thinking of a new furniture or cars or boats or houses and how much is the how much is this going to cost me in terms of monthly payments, we begin to think in terms of the total cost and what does that do to our goals of, let's say, college for the children, maintenance of, maintenance of our lifestyle, and uh, maybe a secure uh, retirement. Uh, when you seriously consider the possible rewards, if we do plan and set out to achieve our plan versus the consequences of not planning, it's obvious that planning will pay off. Remember, it's not that people plan to fail, it's simply that they fail to plan. So what you have to do is pay yourself first, keep the budget, stay on top of it, make decisions with regard to, is this going to cost me uh, uh, my goals, what am I going to get, uh, is, this, is this worth it? And you make those plans and you stick with it. Uh, make sure that you, you plan and, and stick with your plan. This is Jim McAleese, your weekend financial planner. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. about what happens when a non-spouse beneficiary inherits an IRA. I understand that you have 10 years to take out all the money. Is it true that you can wait until year 10 to take the money out? Yes, that's the change that's been made in the SECURE Act, which became law in December of, what was it, 2019. That made major changes to the rules governing retirement accounts and especially for non-spousal beneficiaries who inherit these accounts. Among these major changes is increasing the age at which required minimum distributions, or commonly called RMDs, must begin from age 70 and a half to 72. So it used to be 70 and a half. Now after the SECURE Act, it's 72. That's the required start and also allowing traditional IRA contributions to be made at any age. They used to have to stop at 70 and a half. Now they can go forever. The biggest change, however, affects people who inherited a retirement account such as IRAs and 401ks from someone who is not their spouse. Let's say your children or your cousins or something. The law eliminated the so-called stretch IRA for new beneficiaries and replaced it with a new 10-year rule. Under the old rule, a non-spouse beneficiary who inherited a retirement account could stretch out the required minimum distributions over his or her remaining lifetime. In other words, you could stretch it out over, let's say, 
stretch it out till age 85 or 90. But that changed. This allowed the beneficiary to take advantage of tax-deferred growth in their retirement accounts for many years. The average is generally 27 years, well past the lifetime of the original account owner. But those things changed under the new rules. Most non-spouse beneficiaries referred to as, quote, non-eligible designated beneficiaries, unquote, must withdraw all funds in the inherited retirement account by the end of the 10th year after the original account owner's year of death. The new rule does not require annual distributions or any distributions at all within the 10-year period. Thus, a non-spouse beneficiary uh, can choose to wait until the 10th year has passed or they can take distributions of any amount in any year along the way, whether to meet income needs or to reduce overall taxes. For example, assume that somebody inherits a traditional IRA account worth $100,000 from the deceased who died May 1st, 2020. The 10-year rule, the 10-year clock begins January 1st, 2021, which is the year after the year of the deceased death. The beneficiary must withdraw the balance of the inherited IRA account no later than December 31st of 2030, the end of the 10th year. Until then, the beneficiary is not required to withdraw any of the money, which continues to grow tax-deferred. But on the other hand, the beneficiary could also make withdrawals of any amount at any time during these 10 years. But even though it is not required to take annual distributions, the beneficiary might want to spread them out to avoid having a large bump in their taxable income in 2030, which would push them into a higher tax bracket. A significantly higher income in a year could also affect the beneficiary's eligibility for other tax credits and benefits or even increase their Medicare premiums or the taxable amount of their Social Security benefits depending upon their age at that point. So, effectively, the new law eliminates the ability to stretch out the distribution over a lifetime. At the same time, within the 10-year window, it gives more flexibility to control the timing of their uh, income than they had under the old rules. It's important to note that surviving spouses are not affected by this 10-year rule. They can stretch out distributions from a retirement account inherited from the decedent spouse over their own lifetimes or roll the inherited IRA into their own IRA. The law also carves out a few exceptions to the rule for certain non-spouse beneficiaries. These include disabled individuals, chronically ill people, and individuals who are not more than 10 years younger than the decedent. Now, for these beneficiaries, the old stretch rules continue to apply. In addition, there's also a special rule that applies to minor children of the decedent. A minor child who inherits a retirement account from a parent must begin taking the required minimum distribution over the child's lifetime, but only until the child reaches the age of majority. At that point, the 10-year rule applies. Does it sound complex? Yes, it is. 
But when you talk to your financial advisor or you're the custodian of your IRA account, they'll give you some good advice. So this is Jim McAleese. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. As we look forward to Christmas with its religious significance and the exchange of presents, we have to know that we have 12 gifts that were given to us by God at birth. These gifts allow us to overcome any obstacle. The first gift is strength. May you remember to call upon it whenever you need it. The second gift is beauty. May your deeds reflect its depth. The third gift is courage. May you speak and act with confidence and use courage to follow your own path. The fourth gift is compassion. May you be gentle with yourself and others. May you forgive those who hurt you and yourself when you make mistakes. The fifth gift is hope. Through each passage of time, may you trust the goodness of life. The sixth gift is joy. May it keep your heart open and filled with light. The seventh gift is talent. May you discover your own special abilities and contribute them towards a better world. The eighth gift is imagination. May it nourish your visions and dreams. The ninth gift is reverence. May you appreciate the wonder that you are and the miracle of all creation. The tenth gift is wisdom, guiding your way. Wisdom will lead you through knowledge to understanding. May you hear its soft voice. The eleventh gift is love. It will grow each time you give it away. The twelfth gift is faith. May you believe. Now you know about your twelve gifts. So use your gifts well, and you'll discover others among those a gift that is unique. You've been listening to Get Rich Slow with Jim McAleese of Cornerstone Consultants, Inc., located at 47149 Bursley Road, Wellington, Ohio, 44090, where securities and investment advisory services are offered through Next Financial Group, Inc., a member of FINRA and SIPC. Cornerstone Consultants, Inc. is not an affiliate of Next Financial Group, Inc., the materials Jim shares is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security or other financial instrument. Past performance does not guarantee future performance. All the views expressed are those of James McAleese and Cornerstone's Consultants, Inc., and not those of Next Financial Group, Inc. Next Financial Group does not provide tax advice. The S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index composed of the common stocks of 500 leading companies and leading industries of the U.S. economy. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is a price-weighted index of 30 actively traded blue-chip stocks. To make an appointment with Jim regarding your own finances, call 440-647-2793. That number again, 440-647-2793. Jim will be back with Get Rich Slow next Saturday morning on 1420 WHK with more common sense finance strategies for financial winners.